The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald, and this is Blethered with Sense Presents Transmit. I'm joined by Transmit headliner Amy McDonald, and we talk about her first steps in the music industry, having a drink backstage with you two, and how much she's looking forward to getting back on the road. And as always, there's so much more. This Monday, 23rd of August, I will be announcing details of my most exciting live show to date at one of Glasgow's most iconic venues. Keep an eye out for it on social media and get your tickets early. If you enjoy this episode, share it with somebody. Cheers. There's probably not a lot of musicians that can trace their first inspiration for getting into music back to a certain moment, but you can trace yours back to, I might be wrong, Tina Park 2000. No, that's totally right, yes. Standing in the pissing rain <laughs> with my mum having convinced her to take me. I can't even remember what age I was. She did not want to be there um, and I thought that is a sign of great parenting right there that um, she took me along. I was just desperate to go um, and I remember watching the bootleg Beatles followed by Iggy Pop and then Travis were the headline. It was the most eclectic lineup ever and it was just brilliant and I just felt so inspired mm. and I, I remembered watching all of the artists and them talking to the crowd and performing and just thinking, I'd love to do that. Aye. You went out, you went out and bought the, it, was it the Travis's chord book? It was the Travis chord book, yeah, that I bought to kind of start myself off to, to play the guitar. So the first song I think that I was able to play myself all the way through without about 10 minutes between chord changes was the song Turn eh, from their second album The Man Who so that was that was the first thing that I learned on the guitar there was a when I when I kind of found that out about the whole Travis thing and I remember seeing a picture of you like years ago so I would have still been at school so must have been like 2007 2008 were you working with Travis at that point because there was a picture of you and Travis and they were totally bumming you up and I remember thinking well, she must be the real deal because I love Travis and I'm thinking if they're saying she's brilliant, then she must be. Yeah, that was so random. I think that was a, a gig that they were playing with a radio station and then I ended up getting on as the support act. And I remember just at that point, like I'd not really done much at that point, but just thinking, well, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. If you'd have told me however many Aye. years ago that I would be sat here um, with these guys doing a gig with them I would never have believed you what I'm quite curious to find out about is how you end up actually playing gigs and stuff because was it the like the Brunswick Cellars and places like that, your first gigs how do you actually take that step because being for Bishop Briggs did you go to Bishop Briggs High? I did yes right I went to Turnbull so oh, did might you? have thrown stuff you at you in Bishop Park <laughs> we all hated each other and we didn't know why I know for some, just because we happened to be like a mile away from each other <laughs> uh, or half a mile whatever it was how do you actually take that that leap? Because it's quite an unusual thing, isn't it? Like it's it's something that people would maybe be embarrassed about or be like, oh, I don't know how to put myself out there or can I take that step? Yeah, um, at Bishop Briggs High School, the better of the Bishop Briggs schools, <laughs> <laughs> um, we had a, a talent show competition that they done every Christmas, and um, it was basically like a stars in their eyes type yeah. thing. 
And every year I wanted to do it, but I couldn't find the courage. And it got to, I was in third year at this point and I thought, I'll just do it. Mm. And um, I went I went up as Dido with my guitar, sang a Dido song and I won it like easily. Like there was no competition. Right. And I think that's the moment I thought, oh, maybe I could do this more often. And that kind of gave me the push. So then I started getting that kind of hunger to want to perform more mm. um, and like you said I started doing the open mic nights at the Brunswick Cellar um, completely illegally because I was not meant to be in a pub at that age but I just kind of hid in the corner um, done all of that and from that met a couple of kind of local promoters around Glasgow and then they got me a few gigs here and there mm. I started doing gigs in coffee shops and, and that was amazing because I was getting paid to do it and I was just sitting there singing whilst people drank their coffee um, and it just kind of carried on from there and then I read an advert in the back of the NME magazine which was an advert or a production company looking for artists. So I sent my demo away. Um, within six months, I had my management company. I had a production um, deal. And then another six months, I think I was signed to Universal Music. So it all just kind of happened in a flash. Because it happened so quickly, do you have any time to kind of stop and catch yourself? Because, you know, like when you're young, you sometimes don't realise the enormity of what's happening. Like you're looking back now, you, you must go... Fucking hell, like that is absolutely insane. Or did, did you just get caught up in it? Yeah, you totally get caught up in it because I think about everything that happened to me now and I think, how did I even deal with any of that? Mm. Um, because I was 18 when I signed their label. I was suddenly kind of taken down to London, make an album where they, they kind of do all the photo shoots and all of that and that was so strange to me. Mm -hmm. um, I felt so out of my depth. Um, but it just kind of all happened. And then even when my first album came out, it, it came out in the UK, it went to number two. And I just thought, oh, this is what happens. And then yeah. a few months later, it went to number one. It's like, yeah, this is great. And it is one of my regrets that I didn't take it all in. I just kind of thought, oh, this this is what you do. You put your tunes out and they, they go really well. Aye. But I know now that that does not happen very often. Was that like, because this is a life, went to number one in the UK, Denmark, Switzerland, the Netherlands. It went to the top 10 in another 11 countries. Um, I've actually been in a taxi in Barcelona when This Is A Life came on and the taxi driver was singing it and I was like, what? Yeah. Like, what's... And I've, <laughs> not that I didn't think it was a great tune, but I was like, hold on a minute, I thought only we knew about this. And he's like, oh yeah, I love this. Well, me gusta este canción. Yeah, like, you, it's funny, that song, and it's just been the same for the past 15 years now, I think. It's just, it won't ever go away. Like, you can't... It's harder to not hear that I, song in a taxi when you're in holiday. I'm, I was teaching in a school in Spain and so this was 2013 and partly like the lessons I was told to give was like play Scottish music or show them all these things so I'd like play Scottish artists and all the time the kids would be like don't know and I mean I'm playing like Paolo Nettini Simple Minds Rod Stewart and they're going mm, don't know and then I'd put on a couple of your tunes and they're all going oh yeah 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 we know this one I'm like <laughs> this is really strange like yeah. this is hard for me to kind of get my head around like going to, to number one in, in the top ten in so many places it it signifies like a pretty much an immediate end to your old life, like the old you. But as you're saying, you're feeling as if that's how it always was. Was there ever like a proper watershed moment for you where you thought, all right, no, like my life is, the, I don't wipe your be quoting Justin Timberlake, but the old me's dead and gone. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever had that because I don't, I don't feel that different. I'm very lucky that I still have all my old friends mm. and I've always got people around me that will bring me back down to earth. I mean, I've been in the most amazing situations. I remember, I think, quite 
quite near the start, probably 2008, I was doing um, a festival, um, not a festival, an awards show in Berlin. And I was out doing a sound check and everything else. And when I got back to my dressing room, uh, I'd had a note delivered and it, it said to Amy, come and say hi to your fan club. And it was signed by all of you too. Bloody hell. So I then found myself sitting in a dressing room with Bono asking me what I wanted to drink. And <laughs> I do remember at that moment thinking, this is nuts. <laughs> like, this <laughs> is, is really insane. nuts. And then Bono was telling me stories. He was asking me what else I was doing in Germany because I was also on tour at this point. And he was telling me loads of stories about gigs they'd had in, in Germany over the years and things like that. And I just thought, this is really strange. Mm. And there was actually, there's one of them even earlier. There was um, 2007, I think I'd only just released my first single. So I hadn't really done anything. And I got asked to support Elton John at the SECC. <laughs> one of my all-time favourites. Oh, it's amazing. He's incredible live. And um, basically the security guard came down and said, oh, Elton would love to see you. And I was like, okay, great. So I got whisked into Elton's room and he'd basically greeted me with this massive hug. And I'm like, this is Elton John. I'm from Bishop Briggs. Aye. And I was still living in Bishop Briggs at the time as well. I was like, this is really weird. You were at a Daily Dalper the night before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Elton John and it was mad. Like when people like that are endorsing you and backing you, does that cause like a reverberation in the industry where people give you more respect? Because as a songwriter, I feel like you'll immediately have more credibility and more respect. But does the weight of those people behind you, does that give you more of a sort of momentum? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it makes that much difference. I don't know. I mean, obviously people are going to listen when Elton John um, or you 2 tell you what they're into. So, I mean, there's, there's that side of it. But I think for me, it was just these incredible experiences. Mm -hmm. Like if, if everything ended there and then I'd be happy. <laughs> like Aye. I've hung out with you 2 and Elton John, that's fine. <laughs> Early on as well, you were on Ellen, De Ellen DeGeneres and the Craig Ferguson talk show. What was that like? Because, I mean, that's just like, it's the sort of thing where you have, you're like, oh, I dreamt I was on Ellen last night. Yeah. Um, the Craig Ferguson one, I never actually met Craig oh, because did you? they record the music before he's even there. Ah. So I didn't even get to say hi to him. Um, Ellen, I met and she just kept trying to do a Scottish accent and she was terrible at it. And I just felt like saying, shut up. I know, like, <laughs> that's just ridiculous. Like, I'm not personally offended and I don't find it to be racist. But imagine she was pure imitating like somebody from Pakistan or India. You'd be like, mm, that, I don't think that's really all right. It was, just, it was, more, it was more just annoying because I it's couldn't understand irritating. her. Most of the time. That's what always happens. You meet somebody from another country and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm from Scotland. Oh, yeah. And there's just try to do yeah. a Scottish accent. Brilliant. <laughs> like, you sound you sound well, so you sound Jamaican or something. Um in the early days of music, there is the opportunity for people to exploit you. And exploitation in music is is a really big thing, but it's something you don't hear about. In January 2010, you were talking about Susan Boyle. I think she is a prime example in, in the way she was treated. By people manager he said I feel really bad for Susan because I think she's been exploited and the people behind her don't care about her did you ever come across that or was there ever any risk of that happening to you like people kind of trying to take the piss um, there's always people like that in the industry I mean you get it in all industries mm. um, where there's high profile profile people sorry involved um, you kind of get the vultures circling mm. um, you get it everywhere I am very lucky that the team that I've got was a very organic kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I signed a management deal 
uh, with a husband and wife team who basically took me under their wing and it was like a family and then they couldn't do the job anymore so I actually said to my tour manager would you like the job and my tour manager actually started as my guitar tech right in the beginning (laughs) then became my tour manager and is now my manager so I've always had really close friends around me but I have seen a lot of other artists um, even now and and you just you sometimes want to grab them and have a word in their mm-hmm. ear and be like, "Don't trust what they're telling you." Like it's you can spot the bad, the bad guys and gals a mile off. Um, yeah. Well, I can anyway. <laughs> I feel like it would be people just talking about pound signs, pound signs, and camera flashes and stuff, and that is going to get into anybody's head. Like the sort of X factor generation. Like, what do you do? You have an opinion that you're willing to share on that? Like how people are kind of, you know, Simon Kill, and I have got a question about Simon Kill, but he'll bring people out, kind of squeeze money out of them for a year and then they're kind of tossed aside. Yeah, I mean, there's been so many people now that have come from shows like that that Mm -hmm. have came out and said how badly they were treated and how they were basically just cast aside at the end of it and it's the same with a lot of other reality shows there's been people that have been on Love Island and things like that mm. that have came out and were like I was basically just used yeah. and and I think that's awful I think just playing with people's lives because sometimes it can ruin people's lives mm-hmm. um, especially when you come from one of these shows and you're hyped up by everyone and then it's like bang you've won whatever you have your single and then nobody's interested anymore and yeah. you're you're dropped um, without even a second thought about you and I think that's really hard and really difficult for people to go through With the whole I suppose Love Island is shorthand for short term fame now and I, I listened to a podcast I think it was about two years ago and it was with former Love Island contestants and they were all explaining or it was a few of them and they were talking about one of the guys Mike who took his life and he was like cast as the villain is this terrible guy and with no sense of humour and stuff and actually it turned out that the guy was like the funniest guy MD would ever met but because he was so handsome and had this certain look that's how he was cast and it was like for the first year the money's rolling in but there's no education on well you have to pay income tax and you need to be paying your sort of art returns and all these things and he ended up completely penniless but then had the the pitfalls of fame yeah. but he didn't have the money to cushion the blow mm-hmm. because no matter what anybody says if you're getting pelters or your life is quite tough but you've got a lot of money in the bank it does not make it alright but it can maybe you can go right okay this is like a trade off well you don't have the same everyday worries Aye. on top of the other worries mm-hmm. that you've got so if if he had all his cash whatever and then he's got these worries at least he doesn't have a double whammy of Aye. worries um, I think I mean I, I don't think it makes it okay I think that it's still really difficult for these people but yeah. I, I understand what, mm-hmm. what you mean um, another thing I wanted to ask about at the time that you were kind of starting 2008 was like the social media boom uh, did you use Bebo? I did with my friends That not not um, professionally but me and my friends were all at school or we'd just left school and we all used MySpace and Bebo it, MySpace was the first one I kind of that was dying off just as I was kind of coming into it but Bebo was what I used so I found this really funny there'll be people listening who won't know what Bebo is yeah. if they're like when did it die off like sort of 2010 I don't know. It wasn't around for that long. It was just like a little resurgence at the end of MySpace Mm -hmm. and then it moved on to the next thing. Well, I found this really funny because so in 2008, Bebo agreed a deal with iTunes. Do you know know what I'm going to say? 
Bebo. Oh yeah, it was the first ever song, wasn't aye, it? Aye, you were the first ever song. So Be- <laughs> Bebo agreed a deal with iTunes to offer a total of 9 million users in the UK and Ireland the chance to directly download iTunes tracks from any artist that had a profile. There was 500,000 plus artists that had profiles at that point. And it was your single Youth of Today from This Is The Life, which was the first to feature. It was called Free Single Saturday. So you were quite literally like at the start of the social media and music revolution, which is quite an accolade. My question on this is, how big is YouTube and social media been in general for getting your music directly to people? And did you notice a difference because you were coming in just as the traditional methods were losing their sort of stronghold on how music gets out there. Yeah, it actually didn't make a difference to me at all. I still came in when radio was still right at the height, Mm -hmm. so streaming hadn't came in yet or it was just kind of starting. So for me, what really helped me was all the radio thing. Um, Just having the push on radio stations all over Europe, Mm -hmm. that's what massively got me out there. And as the time went on, obviously social media became a big thing, but I think... When I signed my record deal, it was so bizarre to anybody working in music that I had signed a record deal via sending a demo away. Yeah. Because everything was discovered at that point on MySpace. Like I think they'd signed they'd recently signed Lily Allen. Yes. And she was MySpace. And Pixie Kate Lott Nash, was another one. They were all they'd all came via the internet. Mm-hmm. So it was really strange. They were like, Oh, this feels really weird that you sent a demo a CD. Yeah, it was a total throwback. That is nuts. About the, I was reading about the NME thing, and does that even happen anymore? Like, how how do musicians get found now? I just I, I think they don't probably Aye. unless you're like on the internet or I mean a lot of the artists that come through come from a lot of the performing schools, mm-hmm. so they, they've instantly got a kind of a leg up on everyone else. Yeah. But um, it's you don't you don't hear of loads of new artists breaking through organically anymore. Um, no, I think in a, in a way streaming can help because anybody can put the music up there, mm-hmm. um, so it's out there. But unless they're getting the push from the big playlists or anything like that, then it is quite hard to to break through in that market. Mm-hmm. Uh, given up the thing I have to ask, or I, I really want to ask, um, given that this is the official transmit podcast for 2021 we have to talk about transmit now i don't know about you but i'm absolutely buzzing even if there was no music see if there was just to say listen you can all go in the park and just get steaming <laughs> I, I find man because this has been a pure brutal year and a half like it, this is your first time doing transmit is it, it is yes how i mean when you get asked to do it did you what did you jump at the chance or you you have to say that don't you oh no i definitely did um i um I very much miss Teen the Park, so Aye. having something there, um, it's obviously never going to fill the shoes of Teen the Park because of what that was yeah. in the history, but it's great having another big festival in Scotland. I think we definitely need one. So when I got offered, I was absolutely thrilled, uh, really excited to to get mm-hmm. out there, and then obviously it got postponed about five million times. Aye, I know. It's, we're finally getting there. Every time I see the news that restrictions are coming up they're saying by August they'll kind of be scrapped they'll be gone because yeah. everybody's vaccinated which just gets me absolutely buzzing because I can now just see myself I'm working at it I'm doing like interviews and stuff right. backstage so I'll probably be coming to pester you but the thought of being able to go and have a great time but not have to sleep in a tent and actually get to just go up the road and then just come back like that's going to be amazing you can have a shower yeah that's that's different level <laughs> you uh, you played Tea in the Park was it 2012? 
2012 was the last time I played there, yes. Was that, did you sing Born to Run? I did, yes, done an acoustic That's version. That's pure, like, stuck in my head. I, I, I was about to say, I don't know why. It was obviously a very good performance, but I'm like, I don't know why that's a pure abiding memory. What is? What are your memories of Tina Park for playing? Because, obviously, a very different experience for 12 years previous when you were there just as a fan. Yeah, I mean, so I was, I remember being there with my mates in 2006 and my best friend, who's still my best friend, we were watching something and she's like, that'll be you, that'll be you. And right enough, I was back there, 2007, performing, but That's on the metal. little, uh, the tea break tent. Yeah. And she's like, I told you. And she's like, next year it'll be that big stage. And she was right, it was. And I, I remember just thinking, this is nuts. Like, two years ago, I was in a tent, like complete random whatever and here I am on the main stage but that was brilliant yeah. um, and then I think the next time I played it was 2012 so mm. I think I played three times or there might have been another one in the middle but um, 2012 was brilliant and it was one of those years the, the standard just tipping it mm. down with rain all day and I was on Calvin Harris was headlining the King Tut's tent and I was on just before him and um, I remember going out and seeing like a river basically running through the middle <sighs> and I thought people can't even stand in that this is going to be awful this is going to be terrible nobody's going to come in here because it's minging and then just before I went out um, it just like a wall of noise and I thought gosh and then I was shocked it was absolutely rammed mm. and I was like oh those poor people are like <laughs> standing in all that <laughs> mud but it was just a brilliant brilliant gig it was one of those ones where from start to finish everything just goes right mm -hmm. and um, when you chat with your bandmates afterwards everybody's on the same page where they're going brilliant gig brilliant gig so I've got so many happy memories uh, from that did you did you bump into anybody backstage I always have to it's such a predictable easy question but it's like seeing the famous people but like is there anybody you saw and you're like bloody hell well I can't remember who I, who I was actually talking to it was Carol Can for the La Fontaines and they said like Beyonce came in and it was just as if like she's still game um when it's Naveed's daughter's wedding and oh, every right, time yeah. they open the invitation it just shines the gold, gold. <laughs> he said it, it was like that as she walked through and everybody just goes pure silent like as she walks through oh gosh do you know see because it was so miserable we were inside most of the Aye. time like it literally did not stop raining so I don't think I seen I don't think I've really seen anybody that one but I think No Gallagher was playing and because my, my friend had got a picture with him in the toilet and I was like, oh, could you have annoyed him anymore? <laughs> <laughs> so I think he was there, so I seen him over a photograph, but, but uh, I think that was it. <laughs> I would have been just hiding in a trailer. So I never went to Tina Park and I went through this constant loop every single year of going, nah, that's not for me. I can't be bothered sleeping in a tent. And then I'll be watching it on the Saturday night in BBC Three and I'm like, oh no, I should have went to that. Oh, yeah. And then just repeat year on year. And every year I'd say I'll go and then obviously it gets scratched. But I, I love Transmit. My favourite thing about it is just the way the city's absolutely buzzing. Even if you're in you're in town, you're making your way to Glasgow Green, you can just feel that buzz in the build-up. And, and then you, you get to go and other people can't but I always manage to make it out for a night out after yeah. I mean I might not be in a great state or able to communicate <laughs> but uh, that's not because I'm drunk by the way that's just because I'm a wee bit tired um, you were saying it was a great crowd at Tina Park 2012 obviously that's because you're a great artist but do you think there is an element of you know home crowd they kind of want to back you and support yeah, you yeah there's always that specialness and there's always a bit on my part I always feel a little bit nervous mm. Um which is strange, I don't really feel nervous doing other gigs, but when you're doing your home gig, you just want everything to go right and you want to you want to make the audience proud of you in a right. way. You want to make them go, I'm glad I came and watched. Um, and 
with festivals even more so I mean a lot of the people there might not have ever heard your music they might mm-hmm. not really be fans so you feel like you've really got to up your game because you might have to win thousands of people over that's true yeah. I haven't even thought of that yeah um, you've got a you've got a home gig coming up as well so you're playing the Roundhouse in London on my birthday actually oh really uh, 26th of October and then you've got quite a big break until Glasgow on the 17th of December mm-hmm. was that intentional just no, it's right now it was impossible to reschedule tour dates and right, get okay. tour dates. So we just kind of cobbled together a random bunch of tour dates where we could get like all venues have mm. no availability because everybody's trying to either reschedule or book a tour right at the same time. It's like it's going to be like the day they say you can perform, mm-hmm. everybody's going to be on Aye. tour. So we just had to do what we can. We could there for dates. So uh, will you be privy to some information? Because obviously if this has all been organised, surely these venues and their management are going to be like, right, we can definitely do these gigs on these dates like do you think they'll definitely go ahead I don't know this is the thing I think a lot of people in the industry know as much as you and I do Mm. like that there's not a lot of information going about and like with the governments music hasn't really had a lot of support at all and and you've got the the department for culture, music and sport which should just be renamed the Department for Sport because really (laughs) everything else has just been shafted basically Um, so nobody really knows anything I know that there's been meetings going on but we're all just kind of left kind of trying to guess just hanging going let's cross our fingers I I had Jeff Ellis in the studio a wee while ago and uh, I don't know if he liked this comment but I was saying I can't wait to just get scalped with a pint of something <laughs> and I was like I never thought I would say that and he's like that doesn't happen I'm like it definitely does mate I've been hit with about 40 of them it's just going to be amazing when you can finally get back you it's a cliche comment but you don't realise how much you take these things for granted yeah totally like I mean we sh- we shouldn't really take them for granted that's the thing like you speak to loads of people and they're like oh I never realised how much that meant to me and it's like well you shouldn't it's just a normal thing that we should be allowed to do whenever exactly. we want so I-, I hope that we can get it I-, I think that September will be great I mean we'll-, we'll probably have to wrap up warm knowing the Scottish weather but... I know the uh, talking about taking things for granted and stuff it's funny how it started off with me with big things me being like oh going on a plane and being on holiday and being at the football or being at a gig and it very quickly became oh, remember you used to be able to sit inside a coffee shop yeah. with a real mug <laughs> <laughs> you didn't I, have to I, wear a mask like before lockdown like was was lifting before we were coming to level four in Glasgow and I was actually going oh can I wait to like soon we won't even have to always have coffee like out of a paper cup like you'll have it out of an actual mug like bloody hell man talk about breaking down the human spirit <laughs> uh, the other day I was out for lunch with Gordon Smart alright yes and uh, he was saying that you were doing a show or he was doing a show with you in London he wasn't performing I'm sure he yeah. was presenting you and he said you were you were mugged before it was it with, ah. a, was it with a moped gang what happened it was, yeah. I was just walking, like, and I, I didn't even think about this, but I was using Google Maps on my phone because I was out and about in London, don't know where I'm going. And um, I'm literally just walking. And the next thing, it wasn't even a moped, it was just a bike. The guy comes up behind me. I can't hear him. I was next to a really busy road, mm-hmm. so I didn't hear him to come in and just swooped the phone out my hand. And the thing that I found most startling was that nobody tried to help me. See, if that was up here, he'd have been <laughs> fly kicked thing, off his I bike. I was like, somebody would have done something, whereas down there, it's just like, it happens. After it happened to me, I spoke to so many people that yeah. were like, yeah, it happens like every day. I know like so many of my friends that have happened to. And you just feel so like, 
oh my gosh it's like a violation isn't yeah it? just like i mean if phones can be replaced whatever but it just feels like having somebody just do that to you and just put you in that position i just thought it was it was awful like so, like something like that which it will shake you up and it'll kind of make you second guess yourself like when you're i don't know if you're walking down the street you'll be like and you shouldn't have to think that way but oh, totally like, during the day um in terms something that's quite similar is like so that's like a sort of real life violation of something you're like what the hell man like what was needing that that kind of transfers doesn't it onto like social media and and how people interact with you as well how do you how do you deal with that or shake that off because see if i ever get see i'll get like and i can remember every bad thing MD's ever yeah. said to me <laughs> and see i get like five it'll proper ruin my week it does doesn't it aye it's and you're if you're getting it on a heavier scale it's it's quite nice to speak to other people because you all feel that you've got common ground because we mm. all understand how it feels and it's okay f for other people to say oh just ignore it but until it's happened to you you Aye. don't you realize it's so impossible sometimes to ignore it sometimes it really really affects you i have got very good at putting like especially on twitter i've got all of the settings right up to max yeah so sometimes it will block out like really innocent <laughs> replies <laughs> to me i literally see no replies um and then there's the odd one that you do see and you just either ignore it or sometimes you can't resist and you yeah, just you have to, to you have to say something but i just i find it really strange because i, I don't personally know anybody that would waste their own free time just giving abuse to people that they've never even met it's just a really really weird and strange and alien concept it honestly to me. is like i can't i can't get my head around it in the slightest like well, it's, it's so like i speak about this with my husband sometimes because i mean we're all guilty of you watch the tv and you'll be like oh that guy's really annoying yeah but i don't then go and find him on social media Aye. to tell him that i think he's really annoying like exactly. it's just you just wouldn't do that because like, if you transfer these behaviors to real life they they just would never take place and it shows i suppose it's one of the downsides i always say like social media is like fire where it's something that when when sort of used and tempered in the right way can can fuel things it can be a very positive thing but if people get let loose with it it can be destructive it can hurt it can cause irreparable damage but if it was real life you these people they would never in a million years would they come up because you could probably count in one hand the amount of times somebody's come up and went can I stand you by the way it's... I don't think anybody ever has and Aye. it's like if I was going by my social media I, sh I should expect that half of Glasgow hate me but Aye. I've never had anybody come up and say anything it's like the weirdest that. thing it, it, it's such a cliche it's the sort of thing like your gran used to say and you'd be like no that's not true but it's like a jealousy thing and it's probably an inferiority complex and all these things rolled into one and then people are just raging and then they want to take it out on you but yeah, no, it's, I think it's it, not pleasant. sometimes people feel like it gives them a bit of power that they can. Aye. I can do that to you. Yeah, I think that they see that as a bit of a power imbalance, and they think, "Well, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you down yeah. a bigger two. It's like, well, why not just try and elevate yourself? But that would be too hard for you, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, when, how do you feel when you see the press writing about you, even from like trivial and innocuous to hurtful and untrue? Because there's obviously like a, a spectrum. But yeah. do, you ever, do you ever look at the paper and go? Honestly, you went to uni for five years to write about the trainers I'm wearing. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, there's most of the stuff like I and the issue I've got is I go to other countries and stuff and I'll then get asked questions based on 
things that have came up on Google News, which are random stories and tabloids mm. that aren't even true. Aye. And then I'm like, actually, that isn't true. Sorry, move on to your next Aye. question. And you just go, oh, whatever. But everybody knows that it kind of, it's like, it is what it is. They just write anything. And then there's sometimes, I mean, I've been lucky that I've, I've never had, I don't think there's ever been anybody that's purposely written anything Mm-hmm. nasty for the sake of it or whatnot so it's it's all been fine but there are one or two there are a few journalists that have written things Journalists. And I always remember their names but more worryingly more, uh, more worryingly for them my mum remembers their oh, names <laughs> you and your mum like in the gym uh, or something like on the punch bag like, yeah 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 my mum would just be like whatever if she ever came across these yeah. people she'd just be shit she just wouldn't care quite right do you think because I mean you don't seem to me to ever quote t- like press attention or tabloids do you think that kind of separates you because there's people that are like fair game because they play the game so then that they can't they can't really complain when it goes against them yeah I mean but I've had loads of people saying to me oh you're just an attention seeker you're constantly and I'm like I, I really don't feel like I am uh-huh. like <laughs> uh-huh. like I get like abuse on social media when I have the audacity to go on a TV programme that I've been invited How on and like you? she's just an attention seeker and it's like well no I'm trying to get my music out uh-huh. there but yeah Speaking of I've, uh, speaking of your music, I've got quite a few questions about various songs and albums and stuff. The first one I want to ask you about, because I think this is really interesting, it's really interesting in a mundane way from their point of view. So this is a life partly inspired by you being at Gerard Butler's launch party for Law Abiding Citizen, is that right? No, no, no this is a life, a track called An Ordinary Life, An which Ordinary was life, on right. my second album. Right, okay. Yes, basically I got invited, he had a big party in Glasgow um, for his, I think it was the first movie that he'd like produced and directed himself and I um, got to go along his, I think his publicist at the time or whatever, she had somehow stumbled across my music and was a massive fan mm-hmm. Um, so I was chatting to her and whilst I was chatting to her he came over I was speaking to him and then I just remember thinking gosh this must be really hard for him because he he wouldn't have been left alone that entire time it's literally you've got to work the room and then work the room again and then you've constantly get people following you and I just think that must be a lot of the time what life is like when you're that much of a star um, that you see all these massive actors in Hollywood and stuff and it's like do they ever have any time where they can just be themselves and that just was quite an interesting thing for me Mm -hmm. so I I wrote wrote the song An Ordinary Life thinking what it must be like in in that kind of world Was there like your Z-listers hanging off him or like saying yes Gerard no Gerard three bags full Gerard no I don't think so it was it was just there was a lot of press there a Aye. lot of journalists um, photographers cameramen people just following him about everywhere he went because like it's funny saying this because people be like aye because that's a pure problem but with women or whatever there must be a point where that guy and people like him are going here I'm not piece of meat like I'm that kind of normal guy and I also want to just chat about normal stuff but everybody's like yeah yeah you're totally right you're t- like no matter what he says it would get yeah, so boring it probably would yeah and I think sometimes that's when people struggle when they're just surrounded by yes people that are just mm-hmm. going to say yes to them all the time and it's like sometimes you need somebody to bring you back totally. down again I wonder if that is why like no Gallagher is he's fully transformed and he's gone full David Brent like some of the <laughs> 
part of it he's coming away with. And yeah, I the wonder. The second person that said, Sai <clears throat> Ferry said that the other Did day. It? That was the exact quote that he used. <laughs> it's just like when you, stuff he says. I'm not. I'm not going after Noel Gallagher. Like he's a pure legend of music history and stuff. Um, but just like mate, gonna shut up. And it used to be cool, and now he's not cool. Like he pure went after um, Prince Harry the other day, which I don't really have any particular opinion on the Royals. But it's like, okay, that's the one you're going after, not the one who's. I don't want to take this too controversial, but you're not going to have to have Prince Andrew. That's that's who you think deserves your criticism. Yeah. I, I like, no, I still think he is cool. Um, but I do like the... He definitely he wears sketches, man. He's not cool. <laughs> I, I I like Noel Gallagher. That's I think he's very talented. Oh, he is, he is. Yes. I'm I not going to say anything Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I just wish you would... You, you can attribute those quotes to me. You never say that, but I just wish <laughs> Noel Gallagher would just stop being an absolute bam. Um... People won't know this. So your second album, A Curious Thing, that was recorded at Weller's Blackburn Studios in Surrey, and that is Paul Weller. Yeah. He features on that album. He does. He plays, um, he plays on a couple of tunes, yes. This came about because the first ever tour that I'd done, um, before I really released anything, I went on a tour with Paul Weller and Steve Craddock from Ocean Colour Scene was playing mm-hmm. with him as well. And I was a support act all around Europe. It was just, they were just doing an acoustic thing. So they just wanted acoustic support. Mm-hmm. So it was me. And um, I was welcomed with open arms on that tour. That it was brilliant. Um, Steve Craddock is like one of the nicest men you could ever meet. I actually got him up on stage with me and we'd done an Ocean Colour Scene song at one of my gigs. Um, Brilliant guy who actually then came out and toured with me, I think the following year in Germany. Um, Brilliant. And then Paul Weller as well. So welcoming. And he was the one that said to us, if you ever need to use my studio, that's totally fine. And then convinced him to... um, play some some stuff on it as well and then he came along to that gig um the london gig that i was doing for when i launched that album he came along um straight into my my rider going what have we got what have we got and i was like oh gosh i'm not as rock and roll as you are there's a jack daniels and i have that that is so cool like when i saw that i was like no way these are like i love these things that people don't know or don't realize like i always try do you remember Fame Academy? Yes, I liked Fame Academy. Me too. Right. Because it was more about the talent. It was more yes. like write your songs. And it was David Sneddon Love who David won Sneddon, it, who was man. great and who's actually got a really good career now. He I, writes songs for, for other everybody. people. Yeah. So like I, I these are like I love going on my YouTube and Wikipedia and sort of Google journeys and stuff. And I remember cause Stop Living the Lie. Any kids who've never heard David Sneddon Stop Living the Lie, go and listen. Um and it was that's how Paolo Natini was discovered. Uh, via David Sneddon being late for like a gig, and yeah. it was um, it was like a, some Clyde one thing. Paolo ended up singing, and he was discovered. Um, do you remember the girl Alex who was on? Yes, with the short blonde the short hair. hair. Yes. Did you know that in Last Request she sings behind Paolo? Oh, I didn't know that. Next no. time you listen to it, listen ah. out and you can make out her voice. And once you hear it, you can't unhear it. Right, okay. So these are the, the kind of wee things that I try and say to people. And I'm like, remember Alex yeah. Fame Academy? No. And I'm like, oh, well, that's the end of that conversation then. Oh, yeah, no, I remember. And then obviously, so David Sneddon's doing well. And then Lamar probably oh. had, a, he had a really great career as well. He's still a regular, daily regular my Apple Music. Like, yeah. absolutely amazing. He still does quite a lot of stuff as well. So you're like, that's the, the reality show they needed to stick with but Aye. instead they went to the other side songwriting to me seems to be where it's at 
It's where the royalties are, it's where the money is, it's where a lot of the credibility or the prestige is. Do you ever see yourself writing for anybody else? Um, I'd absolutely love to write for other people. It's just that I think it's quite hard to get into it because you've mm-hmm. got your, it's a, a very cliquey business, I think, especially out in yeah. America. You've got these teams that are, they, they work like a team writing songs and that's just, it's like a hit factory. Um, so it's quite hard to get into Um I done. I got asked to write a few songs for a Disney movie a few years ago, no um, which was brilliant. And I really loved getting a brief and going, "You need to write a song about this, and yeah. here's the scene that it's going to be used in, and it needs to flow with that." And I loved doing that. So if somebody actually came to me and said, "Write me a song about this or that," I'd, I'd, I'd really quite enjoy doing that. I might do a musical about the gang wars between. Turnbull High and Bishop. Oh gosh. So you can you can write something <laughs> so uh, something to do with that, like something really dramatic. Um in your third album, Life in a Beautiful Light, you've got a track called In the End. And it's, it's written when you question yourself whether being a musician was a worthwhile occupation. This sounds like a pure closing question, but isn't it? As you look back, so like how many how many years is that now? Thirteen? Well it's... well, when you wrote it, I suppose it was twenty twelve, so it's about yeah. nine years ago. Mm-hmm. As you look back, has it been a worthwhile occupation? Yeah, I think so. I think where that came from, about that time, my sister was actually going through medical school. And I just remember thinking, wow, like she's worked so hard and she still works so hard Mm -hmm. and her job now means that she helps so many people. And then I go, what do I do? I just go and sing. (laughs) And I think I was just kind of going, this is a bit like, "Mm, what's the point of this? But... I think it, it it is worthwhile. Um, the the connections that I've made, even if I just think of myself, like mm-hmm. a lot of my bandmates, my crew, they're like family to me now, and I can't imagine my life without those mm-hmm. people in it. Um, so from music, I've met all these people, but then also the the fans that you meet. Like I have, um, people that come to gigs that have basically come from the start, and um, there's this. Um, there's these two sisters in Germany and they're identical twins and they started to come into my gigs right in 2008 I think when I'd done my first gigs in Germany and they were about this height and now they're adults and it's Mm -hmm. really weird because I'm like I've basically watched them grow up because they're always down the front and you obviously spot them right away because they're identical (laughs) (laughs) and they always wait behind after every gig to say hi and all that and it's like it's just really lovely that something that I do just in my spare time writing these songs can have such an impact on on people I'm really curious about the the whole Germany thing because you're really popular in Germany and and Switzerland as well and and in so many other countries but we'll focus in Germany how does that happen did did, did, did your music just come out and Germany just loved it or was there a certain thing that you can pinpoint and go all right okay that's why because it's so unusual um it is unusual especially with Germany it's a very hard territory to break Mm -hmm. into for an international artist it's really quite unusual um even artists that are like massive everywhere else they kind of sometimes struggle with the German market Mm -hmm. um especially now like the German charts right now are predominantly German hip-hop music so (laughs) yeah anything else just will not get played right now but um, I don't really know what happened. I mean, I was lucky. 
with my first album, I got a lot of good promo. Um, I got a lot of good TV shows in Germany and some of their TV shows, because it's such a massive country, some of the TV shows are watched by like 10, 20 million people. So mm-hmm. you're on there with a song and as long as you perform well and they like the song, then that just kind of gives you that, yeah. that in. And um, speaking to people in Germany, like over the years, they've said that what they like about me is that I just seem like somebody they could be friends with. Mm. And it doesn't seem like I'm coming over the big star that thinks I'm all that. I'm just like somebody that comes over and is really happy to be there. And that's just who I am. And that's what I would always want people to take from me. (laughs) That's funny. That kind of reminds me of there's a quote that um, Roy Keane made about Paul Scholes, where he's like, the reason everybody loves Paul Scholes is that because they think he just lives in a council house <laughs> like, he does live in a council house and he's like but he's just got that thing that we sort of boy next door kind of charm they're like oh he just loves his football they're probably looking at you and going she just probably lives in a wee one bedroom flat and just loves her music yeah it's I mean I I, 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 I don't really know but that's what people have said yeah. to me um, and it's, it's been very good for me how does a chat show work there do they just need to speak to you in English or? oh no it's awful I get an earpiece so I am getting the host speaking to me in German, which I can hear loud and clear because yeah. it's just one little earpiece. And then I'm getting somebody translating it as uh, they're speaking, but they're obviously a little bit behind. Yeah. So the the hosts have stopped speaking. I've not quite worked out what the question is yet. Yeah. And then I have to start talking. So it's, it's a nightmare. How but... do they then relay that back to the watching German public? So they put subtitles up. So somebody so, has to sit and type that in the moment. So when I'm sitting, when I'm talking, they will put subtitles up for me talking <laughs> um, on the screen and then they just talk back to me in German. But the, everybody in Germany speaks perfect English. Yeah. Um, so the host can understand me, but it's just for everybody mm-hmm. at home. I am... Um... You you did the Scotland HQ live yes. recently. So on the they did like a big... 10, 11 hour show on the opening day and I presented for an hour and I had an earpiece in and well, so it's, this is going out live, there's three guests but they kept talking in my ear and they, I was like, gonna get to the point because <laughs> it's like I can't speak until you finish because I don't know what you're saying and like my heart rate must have been my Fitbit must have been saying like <laughs> 220 beats a minute I'm like please gonna hurry up I'm really feeling the pressure so I can't imagine what that must be like hearing a foreign language waiting for the translation like that would be that would be a nightmare do you ever see yourself living in Germany or abroad or do you do you feel most at home here? Um, I really feel at home here. Um, I'm such a homebody that I'd probably mm. struggle to go anywhere else. I mean, I could I could happily go and live in America. I Aye. think the only thing is I'd miss my family and my friends too much. Um, there's quite a lot of people that have went, like Fran Healy lives in LA now, um, Katie Tunstall lives in LA, so there's a lot of Scottish artists that have upsticked and went over there, but I, I don't know if I could leave everybody behind. Ah, you say that, but when it's like... It's the sunshine. I know it's when just it's the weather. You're on Venice Beach and you check the weather in Bishop Riggs and it's like sideways rain. It really makes such a difference knowing that it's going to be sunny every day. It just lifts your spirits all the time. I can get why people move to, to sunnier climates. Uh, 100%. Um, just as we kind of round up, I'd like to talk about your most recent album, The Human Demands. Um, did you finish that in 2020? It was, like a, was it like a delayed release? It, so I'd started in the studio in January 2020. Mm. We got through till March well. and we were like, right, <laughs> end this year. So we'd got halfway through 
And then I was just at home for that whole time, like everybody was. Um, and then when things started to kind of tentatively reopen, we were allowed back in the studio mm. um, to finish it. But it was really weird because I was back in London, but no shops or anything were open That's yet. Bizarre. No hotels were open. So I had to live in the recording studio, oh, really? which was the weirdest thing ever. So me and the producer, because both of us didn't live in London mm. and one of my musicians, the three of us lived above the recording studio in their little <laughs> rooms that they have. And I was like, this is weird. I feel like I'm never leaving work. I literally Aye. go up the stairs at the end of the night and then come back down first thing in the morning and you just couldn't go anywhere. So it was a strange experience, yeah. but it was nice to get back into the studio and actually finish the album. Well, there's a f- quote that you, said about the album which is funny because it kind of ties into that whole experience you said the human demands is an album about life and the ups and downs that come with it it's never easy for anybody and I don't think we give ourselves enough credit sometimes we're just expected to constantly be going 100 miles per hour all the time and that can be demanding for anyone that period was a time when we had to just stop yeah there was nothing we could do do you well I suppose two questions one was lockdown a chance for you to stop and go, here, by the way, I've actually done all right. You're like, I've done pretty well. And to kind of reflect and take stock. And do you do that in general? Or are you always like, I need to be kicking on. I need to be doing more. Um, I think during lockdown, I think, first of all, the worry for me was, God, I won't be able to put this album out. I won't be mm. able to go on tour. What am I going to do? Is that the end of my career? Because it's just going to be ruined by this. And I actually thought, do you know what? See if it is. I've done all right. Like, I can't complain. If you'd told me that I would still be doing this and I'd be on to album number five all those years ago, I would never have believed it. So I thought, well, if it is, que sera, sera, basically. But I make sure that I do take some downtime because when you bring out a record, you're then away doing promo for months. Mm -hmm. Then you're doing a tour for months and you're constantly, you've got to have your phone at all times because you're constantly going to have things that you have to do or interviews you have to do or places you need to be. Um, So it is 100 miles an hour. But I always make sure that when I get to the end of an album campaign, I basically go, right, everyone, goodbye. Gotcha. I'm doing nothing for a while. Like, And I think some artists feel like they always have to write all the time, but I feel like I just need to get my life back. I need to go and hang with my mates again. I need to hear all their daft stories that mm-hmm. inspire me to write songs. And, and I just need to live a normal life again because that's what inspires me most when I write. You mentioned there about if you were to, if somebody was to tell you at the very start, you'd have done all these things that you've, maybe would have struggled to believe that can you remember because it's it's obviously a very abstract thing now can you remember oops just dropped my bottle cap there um at the start did like where you thought or here's maybe where i'll get to or or, here's what i'll achieve or here's what i'd like to to do or here's what seems realistic it sounds really weird but i actually never even thought about it Mm. like even when i put my first record out i was just like just kind of going with the flow and I think another thing that's a benefit of being young like I was 19 when that album came out and you don't really have the same overactive mind where you get anxious about (laughs) things you just kind of go it is what it is Um, because even back then like I wouldn't get nervous doing anything like I could go on live tv live radio like sing the songs not even think about it whereas now I work myself up into a stupor about don't make a mistake don't make yeah. a mistake um, and I think that's just the benefits of being young so mm-hmm. so back then I didn't really have an idea I didn't really have a plan 
Um, I was basically winging it and to a certain extent I feel like I still am every single day <laughs> Aye, it's funny because I, I look back at being like 18, 19 even like 24, 25 and I'm like looking back I'm going oh my god I was walking an absolute tightrope but at the time you're like oh this is fine Yeah. but as you get older it's like you'll just be sitting and my brain will go are you, are you not worried? and I'll be like about what? And my brain's like, I don't know. And then I'll go, like, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I should, should be. I, I should be worried about something. Um, as we kind of round up, it's, the Hudson is my favourite track on that album. And it's probably my favourite song of all years. Like I'll Aww. play it and repeat, I absolutely love it. Uh, and I, I read you saying it was about looking back on life and wondering if you've made the right choices and reminiscing and time's gone by. Talking about daydreaming, we all wonder if we've done the right thing. But at the end of the day, we'll never know the answers. Now, as you look back in a career that's taken you you and your music all over the world with number ones and top tens and awards in more countries than I can name off the top of my head. How does it feel to you when you look back from this point? Um, it's nuts. I, I wish that I'd written everything down, um, especially because it's been a journey with the kind of same group of people. Mm. Like my manager, like I said, like he's been with me for the past 12 years or whatnot and my drummer's played with me since 2006 so it doesn't feel like it's just me mm -hmm. it feels like I've had this amazing journey with a group of really close mates and I think that's what makes it even more special just some of the situations we've found ourselves in um, the gigs that we've done um, the amazing people that I've been able to meet um, I just feel very very lucky mm. when I look back and I think that's why I'm quite chilled out about it. If it was to end tomorrow, I can't really complain because everything's been... I mean, there's ups and downs like there is with everything, but I, I feel like I've, I've been very lucky to, to have these experiences and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I think there's a film and a book in there somewhere, oh, I surely. So. Like, I think it culminates with the, in the middle of a lockdown and a global pandemic I found myself in the Vatican meeting the Pope so did you <laughs> yes no way <laughs> that, I... that was the end of the book <laughs> unbelievable that yeah although I did get a selfie with the Pope kind of oh did in you in St Peter's Square he, I mean he's on his wee Pope mobile but he, oh, is, right. he is looking down the barrel oh well I he's, think, he's, he's, he's handing me a, a set of uh, perils <laughs> all right man don't show off <laughs> that is absolutely amazing Amy thanks so much for coming in I really, really enjoyed this and, and hearing all your, your insights. So, hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And you'll be able to see Amy at Transmit on the main stage. There's still some tickets available, so don't miss out. Catch you next time. Cheers. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media. You could start a fight in an empty house. Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug, and old school, all on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.